0: And if you're still interested, or if maybe you're joining us for the first time and you don't have this, we put it on uh, online so that you can see it, Uh, it's on our Facebook page right at the top, I think Sarah pinned it up there, Uh, but this is a series, they answer more questions in this document than I hit uh, during this month and they go a little bit deeper into some of the issues and give a couple different perspectives on some of these questions than I hit because some of the things I just changed, but I thought it was a good starting point and I wanted to share this information. And this series has focused not solely on Scripture, but also the other things that God's given us to be able to answer some of the biggest questions that people are asking of God online, right? So it's handled things, yes, like Scripture, but it's also handled things like philosophy and science and history to try to bring a fuller picture of some of the arguments that can be made for, uh, for the existence of God, right, for the existence of... A, not only just a general God, but like, you know, Jesus as being specifically God, and then other questions that I'll talk about in a second. But all of these things, though, I think are big questions that I'll, like a lot of people are asking, and the Bible gives really good answers, but God has also revealed himself in other ways that helps us to see the reality of who he is. And that's what this series has really been about, just trying to tackle these questions. Now, why am I doing this, though? So there's a couple different reasons why we're doing this, and I share this every week because I want everybody to be clear that's been here for all of them. If you're watching and you're just tuning in or if you're here for the first time, why are we doing this series? Well, my job as a pastor is kind of laid out in Scripture, in the New Testament. So in the Bible, the Apostle Paul writing to a church, kind of explaining church leadership, and he says, Jesus gave some to the church to be apostles, some to be prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. So he did that. On purpose. So there's this structure in church for a reason, and if not to be at the top. if not to be awesome and better than everybody. That's not what church leadership is. Church leadership is about serving the people. And so the next verse, the purpose of these offices is to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ. So my job is to be a servant just like Jesus and to invest in people that are followers of Christ so that the church can be healthy, so that the church knows what it believes. But there's also a part of this series that really is also me just sharing the gospel. It's about not just talking about ideas for Christians, but it's also presenting a case for the reality of Jesus Christ and the gospel that we just celebrated this morning doing communion. So followers of Jesus should understand what they believe, and they should be able to communicate what they believe. So it's also part of the series as well. And that comes out of First Peter 3, and he's writing to a church and kind of writing to even leaders within the church as well. But he's saying, like, wh- wh- how should we handle our faith? And he says this in verse 15 and 16. He says, in our hearts, we should regard Christ as the Lord and as holy. So that means if you're a Christian, if you celebrated this this morning, that means Jesus is in charge. Right? Jesus said pretty specifically, John 14:15, if you love me, what should you do? keep my commands, right? You can listen to what I say and believe that my way is the best way. So that's what being a Christian is. is put my life kind of under his lordship and then knowing that he's holy. So he's set apart. He's different from me. Then next, Peter says, we should always be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. A lot of Christians struggle with this. So it's another reason we're doing this series. A lot of people feel like if I don't have all the answers, man, I can't talk to anybody about my faith. And that's just not, like, that's not the expectation of Jesus. The expectation of Jesus is that we are going to follow him as his followers and that we are going to understand what we believe and that we're going to share that with other people. Like, if I really believe in the gospel, if I really believe that Jesus has offered us the one way to have eternal life and to have a fulfilled life in this life, man, how could I not share that? As an individual Christian, how could we not share that? Because so many people don't. But clearly the expectation is that we will. And so that's also why we're doing this series, is just to hit on this right here. Some of the things we've talked about, so since this is the last Sunday, just a quick recap of the things that we talked about. First was how can I know that God is real? That's a big question people ask online, like, well, how can we know, right? There's, there's so many things that kind of seem to contradict with science and faith, and I don't think that they need to contradict. Um, and then so what we made the argument is, knowing that there is a God, some things to consider, that's what this series is about, things to consider. The fact that the universe exists at all, right? That there was nothing and then all of a sudden there was everything. And not just the fact that there's the universe, but it was fine-tuned. Because mathematically speaking, we know that um, a lot had to happen. Mathematically speaking, there had to be perfection in the blink of an eye. Had to be perfection immediately for matter to exist. So the fine-tuning is another thing. But then not only fine-tuning of the universe for matter, but also that you could go from matter to life. That's really confusing, that we could have raw material that could somehow change into life. That's a confusing process that we still don't completely understand today. But, and then also the fourth thing that we talked about was just right and wrong, right? Having absolute truth is something in a postmodern society that we don't really like, but it's still important because we can't really decide good, in a, like in a, in a good manner, in a, in a correct manner, how to define right and wrong. Because generation to generation, it just keeps changing and shifting. Right? An example I gave last week was if your best friend or one of your close family members commits a crime, breaks the law, all of a sudden now your morality, it might shift a little bit, right? If you're in class, when you're in school and you see your best friend cheating on the test, all of a sudden now you know that's wrong, your morality is going to shift a little bit because now it's close to home, it's your friend, it's your best friend, right? So this is what we do with morality, we shift it, we, we shade it. And so that's why we need something outside of us to say, no, 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 definitively this is right and wrong. Those are just the things to consider. And then the second week, drilling down, more narrow, who is the real God? If you didn't know, Jesus Christ said, without any confusion um, to the people in his time, he said he was God. And that's what they killed him for, right? That's what they wanted to crucify him for. He said, but which one of these in John 10, which one of these miracles are you wanting to crucify me for? Which one of these do you want to kill me for? And they're like, look, it's not a miracle that we're trying to end your life. It's because you, a mere man, claim to be God. This is his enemy. Right? So his enemies clearly understood what Jesus was saying about himself. And he said lots of other outlandish things as well. He talked about heaven and hell and judgment. He talked about all this stuff, and all of that, really, the, the, the proof of that is this here. It's the resurrection. And we talked about that a lot week two, because without the resurrection, man, Christianity just dies the night that Jesus dies. Because And we'll talk about it a little bit today. He had a group of cowards that abandoned him the night that he was arrested. And just a few days later, all of a sudden now something radical has happened, and then all of a sudden these guys are going to go out, these women are going to go out, and they're going to give their lives to this message about Jesus. So something crazy must have happened. So that's kind of some things that we talked about to consider, week two. And then last week we talked about a tough one, why do we suffer? This is a, um, stated differently, why do bad things happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? Right? And so these are really difficult questions and hard questions that you can't just get an easy answer for, but there's a couple things, again, to consider. One thing, and this is not what we like to do, you may be suffering in your life right now because of your own choices, right? You may be making choices that are having negative consequences in your life, so that may be one thing, but then two is that suffering is just a reality. So what I love about the Bible is it's honesty. So the Bible from the very beginning says, look, there's a sin issue in the world. There's a sin problem in the world, and it causes physical suffering. It causes your grandmother to get sick. It causes people to get cancer. It causes people to harm other people intentionally. Like, there, there's a really clear reason laid out for this, and nowhere in the Bible does it ever say that we won't suffer. But there's a lot of people that think suffering and a good God can't coexist, But God says, look, because of sin, because of the brevity of life, you're going to suffer. You see it all across. Every page of the Bible, you see this. And for some reason, probably because we're in a very privileged society, we think there shouldn't be any suffering. And so when there is, we're like, well, God must not be there. God must not care. God must not be good. And all across the Bible, all he ever says is, man, in this life, it's going to be pretty difficult at times. You're going to go through some struggles. But what Jesus says, and what I'm preaching on when I go up to work camp, is he says, guaranteed you're going to have struggle, but if you belong to me, I want you to be courageous in the midst of that, because I'm going to walk it with you. I'm going to be in it with you. My life, Jesus says, as the creator, was about struggle, was about difficulty, was about unfairness, because I want you to know that I get it. I've lived it, right? And so this is really important stuff to know about Jesus. Not that it necessarily makes the suffering any easy, Easier but to understand that it is just a reality. Sometimes because of external things, but sometimes because of my own choices. Right? Right? So, why do we suffer? That's a tough one. But that's what we were at last week. And then this week we're we're gonna ask or answer, I guess, try to present some ideas about this question here. How can I know what happens when I die? This question right here is the most asked question in this series online. People really want to know what happens when we die. So, I don't know if you've seen the show, The Good Place or not, I have not. I had to actually Google it with Pastor Tim this morning to really see what it was all about. Um, But I know the show, I know of the show, but I go in and out of having cable, so I don't always get shows. But the premise of the show, if you've not seen it before, is in the first series, they think they're in heaven, they think they're in The Good Place, but, oh, spoiler alert, they're not, right, and so there's this struggle of, of thinking they're there, But then they're not, and the show, interestingly, follows a very familiar pattern with people and religion. They ultimately think that they need to earn their way to get to the good place, right? That's the basic premise of the show. And again, so if you've seen it and you're a huge fan, you've got it tattooed on you, my bad, because I'm probably going to butcher it. But this show, though, the idea, though, is that they have to earn it, right? And then when they finally get the chance at the end of the show to decide where they want to go so they can either go to the good place, finally, or they can be annihilated, they obviously choose what? To be annihilated. Oh, yeah, what? Right? So, yeah, they don't want to go there. Now, that got me thinking. So I just found this out this morning. So it's like I'm just kind of shooting off the cuff here. But uh, that got me thinking, though, in the 10 minutes I had before church started, I wonder why. Like, why would that be the, the place that they would go? And I think here's what happened with people in America. We have the most lame idea of what heaven is like that you could possibly come up with. Most people have the, seriously, the most lame view of heaven you could ever come up with, Christians included. I remember when Dean did a series on heaven several years ago, there were a lot of people that were like, what? Himself included, right? There were some things you learned during that, and he was like, wow, I had never even really considered that. But it was a book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven, I believe, right? So if you're interested, you can check that out on your own. But the idea, though, that here's what most people think of heaven is that I'm going to have to wear some white robe, so I'm going to be stuck in a dress for all of eternity, right? And I'm going to be living on a cloud somehow. There's going to be some kind of physical basis for the cloud for me to kind of be in. And that seems cool for like 10 minutes, right? Like jumping from cloud to cloud, okay, cool. But now I've got forever left, and that's depressing, right? And not only that, but somehow the harp got introduced. So we're all going to know how to play the harp in heaven. And that's really the, the best you got really, in heaven. And then, or, or like kind of right next to that lame view of heaven is that it's really all about what I want. Like, I hear people all the time, well, I can't wait till I get to heaven because I'm going to do dot, dot, dot. The underlying premise there is that heaven is about what I want, right? And so if heaven is just about what I want, also, it's going to be pretty lame, and I'm going to get tired of it pretty quickly. Because think about every, anything you've ever been like, I can't wait till I get that, give you about an hour, right? And it's like, okay. Right? Because that's how we are. We get sick of things really quickly. And so this question right here is still asked a lot. They're doing TV shows based on this. But I think a lot of us have a really bad misunderstanding of what heaven is actually like biblically. Like what does the Bible actually say about that? And that's what I want to try to answer today and give you some things to think about. Now, every religion in uh, really pretty much across time has this extension of life beyond the grave. It's just a very common theme all the way back to, You can, like the earliest you can study, people have been talking about the next life. And so the difference, though, with Christianity, and what I want to talk a little bit more about today is how that all hinges on the resurrection and how the resurrection affects, impacts, and dictates what life after death is actually like. That's what I want to talk about today because the resurrection actually has a direct link to what we're talking about when we say eternity, just to make sure we're on the right page. What Jesus talked about, what the Old Testament talked about, what the New Testament talked about. So hopefully you can have an accurate idea of at least, even if even if you don't believe it after you leave today. Hopefully you do. If you don't by now, but even if you don't, at least you know what it says. At least you know what the Bible says about this. So ideas about life after death. What are they? If you're an atheist, you plant food when you're dead, right? That's it. Just that's that's it. Now, a lot of the religions, though, they have an idea about life after death, but for, there's lots of differences, though, because if you go to Eastern religions, like Asian religions, you're going to have more of an idea that you're going to kind of just rejoin the energy of the universe or you're, or you're going to kind of disappear into the universe or something like that. Perhaps uh, in some of the religions, the Eastern religions, you're going to be in this cycle. You might get caught in a cycle of rebirth until you can finally figure it out, and then you can then not exist and be a part of the universe. And so, like, they all kind of have like a, a similar vein. And then you have some like, that have gone by the wayside, like Greek mythology, you know, and like, this kind of shadowy underworld after death. But then you have like, the, uh, the religions of the book, so to speak. You've got Islam, you've got Judaism, and you've got Christianity. So let's start with Islam. So Islam is, is somewhat familiar to people that are like, vaguely familiar with the Bible and like, the picture of afterlife. There's a heaven, there's a hell. But the, the certainty of the afterlife is really non-existent. Because if you are a follower of Islam, it's all about the will of Allah. They talk about that a lot. The will of Allah, the will of Allah. So you're really trying to earn it, earn it, earn it, earn it as much as you can in this life and hope that Allah picks you. That's kind of how that works. Now Judaism is interesting because Judaism, they didn't really have a clear understanding of what happened after you died. They all knew that you went to Sheol. They knew that there was life after death. But as far as what that meant and was there any separation, they weren't really clear. They didn't get fleshed out because you see that in the New Testament as well. The Sadducees, a group of religious kind of political leaders, they rejected the resurrection. So they didn't they didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things about the afterlife. But in the Old Testament, in Judaism, you do see the idea of a resurrection, of the just and the unjust. So they understood at some point there was going to be kind of this physical separation of people and you see that about 500 years before Jesus, Daniel gives this uh, gives this vision here, gives this idea of what will happen. And he says, many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some do eternal life, and some do disgrace and eternal contempt. So, heal, right, you're going to go to be with your forefathers, but after that, you know, the resurrection, but not a lot of clarity. And then you have Christianity, which really stands in stark contrast to a lot of that, because, again, it's is a little chaotic because there there are a lot of confusing things about life after death, even for Christians, because what do we see in the Bible? If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, there's no in-between point. There's no, like, i got to go to the waiting room with, uh, with, like, music playing and, like, hope for the best, like, there's none of that. 2 Corinthians 5, Philippians 1, both really clearly state, when you leave this life, where do you go? To be with the Lord. This clearly states it, when you leave this life as a follower of Jesus, you go to be with the Lord. If not, then you go to a place called Hades, and then, like, and there's all, like, there's things involved in that, that go to the end times, but specifically just saying what the views of the afterlife are for a follower of Christ, that you're going to go be with the Lord, but there's, like, a temporary heaven. And I didn't know this for many, many years as a Christian until, really, I think you did this series, like, being able to separate out the fact that there is, like, an eternal but kind of temporary heaven now, Wrap your mind around that. But then there'll be a physical heaven for eternity. And this is the part that pretty much everybody misses. is the physical nature of eternal life. It really stands apart from every other view. There's no shadowy, mysterious afterlife. But what is repeated over and over and over again is that there's a reality of a physical nature of eternity. So here's what I mean. John chapter 5, it, it talks about this. Here's Jesus. He's going to, and this in this scene, you have John reiterating what we read in Daniel 12. And he says, a time is coming when all who are in the graves are going to hear the voice of God, they're going to hear the voice of Jesus, and they're going to come out, those who have done good things, to the resurrection of life, like Daniel said, and those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. So there's still this idea, heaven and hell, but they're both, there's a physical nature, there's a physical side of this. And when Jesus talks about doing good, He's talking about doing the will of the Father. And for Jesus, doing the will of the Father is believing in the Son. So he's talking about the Gospel. He's talking about what I've come to do, this, if you believe in this, this is good. This is the good news that I've come to proclaim. That there is life after death, and that I am the payment for sin. I am the bridge. And by believing in that, there's going to be two different resurrections. One for those that have, one for those that haven't. And they're going to go two very different ways. This is part of the craziness that Jesus talked about, the judgment, heaven, and hell, the reality of it. Like this is what Jesus constantly talked about. But there's something physical there. Then if you go to Revelation 21, go all the way to the end of the Bible, and John sees this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. This is a really interesting scene because, again, it further drives home the idea that heaven is not some mystical place in the clouds, wearing the robe, getting the wings, because that's also not a thing in the Bible. Like, you're not getting wings. Sorry. Spoiler alert. Right? That's just not the, you're not going to become an angel. Right? That's the other misunderstanding. Everybody's like, I can't wait. You know, they're, they're an angel now. They're not. That's, not. that's not ever in the New Testament. It's just it's not, a, not there. Right, so we have all these weird ideas from cartoons that we watched as kids and like, movies we've seen and, and like, all this stuff, pop culture, but the problem is it's never in scripture. This is a very physical nature and to me, I don't know about you, that introduces all kinds of fascinating things. So if it's going to be physical and it's going to be remade and I get a new body, like, what's, one, what's my body going to be like? What's, like, is there going to be new sounds? Will there be new colors? You know, will it be like a, would there be like different tastes that I didn't have before? You know, like there's a million questions that I, I wonder, like what does this mean when God finally brings everything back to Eden and he remakes everything? And it's like the perfection that he planned. I don't know, there's just all kinds of interesting questions, but heaven is going to be an incredibly dynamic and fascinating place that God makes and then he dwells with us. And we don't quite understand that part either, right, that we're actually going to get to be with God. And there's not going to be any pain, suffering, any of that kind of stuff, any of the worldly things we deal with, but that it's just going to be in the presence of God. So what does that mean? That means you're going to be finally emotionally fulfilled. Most of us aren't, right? Think about times you've been lonely. You felt deserted by people that you loved and cared about. You just felt like you didn't have anybody. Like, that's gone. That means you're going to be physically fulfilled. You're not going to worry about what you look like. You're not going to be worried about the next meal or if you're eating right or, you know, like not like having issues with your body. You're going to be emotionally fulfilled, completely emotionally fulfilled. You're not going to feel that emptiness. You're not going to feel the ups and downs. Like, there's all, like, when you really start to think what the Bible has actually said about heaven, man is fascinating, and man is full of hope, and that's what it's supposed to be. Because this idea that there's no sea anymore, most likely this is poetic language, and he's not talking about there's actually no sea in heaven. What he's talking about is here on earth, there's going to be no There's not going to be any chaos, because that's what the sea represented in that culture. There's not going to be any separation, but the sea also represented. So those things are not going to be there anymore, if in fact this is a a poetic way of saying that, which it very likely is. So we have a beautiful vision and picture of heaven that often we miss, and it makes heaven not a very appealing place, because who wants to go sit on the cloud, play a harp, and wear a dress for eternity, Mm -hmm. right? And it's not there. It's just interesting. All right, so that's the physical side of heaven. But what about the, like, our souls? So in this resource, Googling God, they presented a couple of things that I was like, I don't know, should I share that? But I think it's pretty interesting. So they tried to do a different take on, okay, so let's say that we maybe will agree there is a soul, but what kind of evidence is there outside of just the Bible saying that there is a soul? So I wanted to include it because I thought it was interesting. All right, and basically what they do is they take animals versus humans, and they've done studies. And this is actually very interesting. They've studies on animals with addiction, right? And what they found about animals is they are slaves to their biology. So if you give an animal an addictive substance, it's just going to keep wanting more and more and more and more and more and it's not going to ever consider, maybe I shouldn't do this. This is killing me. They're not going to do that. They're just going to keep at it, keep at it, keep at it, keep at it until it uh, kills them. If there's another animal there, that other animal is not going to be helpful. Like, hey, Jerry, you should probably stop eating that stuff. It looks like it's killing you. Your fur is falling out. You're not looking good. You know? It's not going to happen. That animal is going to fight and kill, if it has to, that other animal to get what it eventually will be killed by, because they're slaves to their biology, and it's just hitting the fun button, and that's all they care about, because that's all our biology wants to do. But for some reason, with humans, there's something in us that fights against our biology, that internally says, okay, what I'm doing is not right. And then the people in our lives, can look at us and say, hey, Jerry, man, you, you need to clean your life up. This is wrecking you. This is not good for you. So there's something in our biology, like that, that, like woven into who we are, that fights against our biology. Sex is another interesting thing. If you look at animals, they're basically programmed to be slaves to their biology in that way as well. What do animals want to do? Babies. Right? They just want to make babies. Now, that's cool in the animal world. It's like, oh, yeah, that's what they do. But if you had people in your life and they were just like, that's how they operated their life, you'd be like, dude, you need to chill. You are a mess, bro. Like, and he's like, no, I just want to have as many kids as I can before I die. Like, yeah, that's not a good plan. Don't do that. Right? Like, that's not a good plan. But, there's, again, there's something in us because for thousands of years of human history, humans have always tended toward monogamous relationships. So they had children together and then they raised those children and that's been a foundational building block of human, all of human history. Why is that? Why do we have something fighting against our biology, kind of making us lean, regardless of if God's in the picture or not? What is it about us that for thousands of years in human history that will always tend toward monogamous relationships and that building block of humanity, the family? It's interesting. I thought it was an interesting observation they made because when you set humans and animals side by side, you see the animals are slaves to their biology. They have no choice but to follow their biological instincts and their impulses. Whereas humans, they have something inside of them that just seems to fight against that biology. So, interesting point, something fun to consider, I guess, uh, that they brought up. But let's look at life after death as laid out by Christianity. So, in the Old Testament and New Testament, there's this argument for life after death. I want you to consider some things that are really kind of outrageous and almost borderline stupid about the resurrection, right? How people would consider them and the facts that are there. So first and foremost, if you wanted to have, if you were going to make up a story about a savior, you would not make a story up about Jesus Christ. He would not be your savior because Jesus was not what they wanted. He's not what they expected because Jesus was a humble servant, right? He lived in a shame and honor society, which we don't understand, right? We don't understand shame and honor in our society at all. We're pretty shameless a lot of times, right? Like we take selfies of our feet when we're in the bathroom and we put it online, right? We're pretty shameless people, right? We don't really care about that stuff. But in that time, that meant everything. Shame and honor meant absolutely everything in that society. So to then write a story centered around a guy that knew nothing but shame, came and dishonor is not a great way. And people in that time wouldn't make Jesus their superhero, right, because he was a servant, he was humbled very often, and he didn't have a home, didn't have a family. Nothing about Jesus was right for the character that you would want to create. So that in and of itself is something that they wouldn't do. And he was hated by the religious elite. So if you're going to have a Jewish Messiah, you're not going to make that person hated and rejected by the religious elite. You're not going to make the center of your story somebody that is killed by pagan leaders, right? You're just not going to make your savior somebody that gets subject. That's not a very good savior if he's killed by people that don't believe in him and, and reject in him. And then you've got all these other details that are related to shame and dishonor that are, like, that are really embarrassing for the story of Jesus, and yet that's the story that is told. Because he's killed in a way, according to Jews, that is a cursed way. He's crucified. He's hung on a tree, and that's, that's a cursed way to die. So again, there's just just Jesus Himself. There's so many details that are just just crazy about Him. But then you think in a in a society then, women, if you didn't know, two thousand years ago in this part of the world, were just a step above worthless as far as their their worth and their their like the way they were viewed by society. A woman's testimony meant absolutely nothing. So you couldn't go to court and be like, oh, Crystal saw this happen. They'd be like, yeah, we don't care. Get some guys, and then we'll figure this out. Like, that's the world that they lived in. So for the writers, the disciples, to write this story and say, oh, and then women were the first to notice the resurrection, that would completely, right from the get-go, discredit everything that they said afterward, because the women were the first one to see it. If you're making up a story in this culture, you would not do that. Secondarily, connected to that, the men, it's embarrassing. If you read the Gospel of res—like of, the, res- like of the, the arrest of Jesus first and then everything else that follows, the men in the story are completely gutless. They totally abandon Jesus. Are you going to write a story in a shame and honest society without, if you get shamed, that's not just you, that's your family and it's your community. And so I'm going to write a story where I'm a chicken, I'm a coward, right? In that society, that's, that's not something you're going to do. So it's another interesting thing to consider with this story. And then the rumor that's started by the Jews, it's mentioned in the Gospels. You have them, the Jewish leaders saying, oh, the body was stolen. Well, why did they say it was stolen? Well, because it was gone, and they didn't know how. But think about who's guarding the tomb, right? If you think of a SWAT team, if you think of SEAL Team 6, you think of the Marines, you know, whatever you want to think, you, you've got these guys that are trained killers standing out this tomb, and you've got these scared, frightened fishermen and laborers that come rolling up, and they're like, all right, boys, let's do this. No, no, that's dumb, right? That's dumb. And so uh, the body disappears because these nobodies came and they overpowered and outwitted these Roman soldiers who would very likely probably lose their lives if the body goes missing. You know, there's stuff at stake for them too. And so, like, there's just a lot of these details, they're like, I don't know. And then what is the resurrection, if it's a lie, what does this lie result in in the lives of the disciples? Rejection from their community, persecution by the Jewish leaders, physical attacks by the Jewish leaders, murder by the Jewish leaders, physical attacks by the Romans, physical death at the hands of the Romans, rejected from every component aspect of life. Most of these guys had to run for their lives to different parts of the known world. So they're going to make up a lie that's going to cost them absolutely everything in a shame and honor culture when these guys just weeks before were total cowards and abandoned Jesus when they needed him the most? Again, these are things to consider. Like the reality of the resurrection is is madness. I get it. And it was then too. But there's something that must have happened. And for all these things to actually be written down the way they were in that culture, that I think are at least worth considering when I consider the truth of the resurrection and the truth of the gospel, what Jesus said. And then, so here's the connection then between the resurrection and where you're sitting today in 2023. Right? Because there is a connection. So in 1 Corinthians 15, this is the resurrection chapter, Paul says, look, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. He has, in fact, been raised from the dead. Because right before this, he says, without the resurrection, this is all a joke. Your faith is a joke without the resurrection. He says, but as it is, he has been raised from the dead because he's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So if Jesus' resurrection happened, Paul's saying, essentially, you should expect as his follower that it will happen for you as well. He's the first. We are the ones that will come after. And he goes on here in the next verse. He says, for since death came through a man, Adam, right? Adam and Eve in the garden. The resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, Jesus. And here's where he he nails this down in verse 22. For just as in Adam all die, so all in Christ will be made alive. So there's this reality that if Jesus was in fact resurrected, that translates to people that are his followers will also be physically resurrected. So again, the, the view of the end, the view of life after death, what happens when I die is laid out really interestingly in the New Testament, like really, really interestingly in the New Testament, that this is not the end of the story, but in fact there's a much more incredible story that doesn't involve sitting on clouds. So this question, um, it's interesting that this is asked most of all these types of questions. How can I know what happens when I die? Well, death is arguably the most scary thing for people that they're going to face. I've heard it said that people fear speaking in public worse than they do death. I think that's garbage. I don't know where that came from. I've never talked to anybody that's like, hey, could you come up on stage? No, can you just kill me? I'd rather die. I'd rather you murder me right now. Like, I've not heard really, I've heard people be really afraid of getting up on stage, but to think that death is, you know, not as bad, most people, that's the biggest one, because for a lot of people, that's the biggest question. They just don't know. It's a scary thing when this life ends, what happens next. But here's the thing. If the God of the Bible is real, and Jesus is that God, and Jesus himself said, I'm going to be resurrected, and as a result, you too will be resurrected, I think there's a lot of hope to be found in life after death. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to wonder. That's the whole reason Jesus came, and really the whole point of the New Testament, is because of what Jesus did, we can know for certain what happens when we die. We can know that, yeah, we are sinners, and we live in a totally broken and disastrous world, and that's just reality, but Jesus Christ says, but, but, i come to give you eternal life, like that's why I came, to pay the price that you could never pay so that you know you could have life in this life and in the next. And there's so much hope in the answer to that question found in the New Testament. But man, culture has like messed that all up and made it seem so lame, but it's powerful, it's dynamic, it's very interesting, and it's a promise that we have from Jesus. From Jesus. That's really something to consider. Now, the thing though, at the end of the day though, we've got these questions that we've asked and then tried to give some good answers for. You know, like I said, so as a recap, so how do we know God's real? How do we know, second one, if the real God is? And then why do we have suffering? And then it all kind of ties up into what happens after we die. Like answering these questions and trying to put these things forward, it for me is interesting. I've spent a lot of time reading about this stuff. I've spent a lot of time talking with other people about these kinds of questions because I like it. It's interesting, it's curious to me. but at the end of the day, though, if these things are true, here's a, here's what I want to lay down for your day. If you're watching as a, as a believer, if you're here today as a believer, are you going to treat God, are you going to treat Jesus as if he is God? Like Peter said in 1 Peter 3, are you going to treat Jesus like he's actually Lord of your life? Are you going to trust him that much and say, I can lean into him when my life absolutely is awful. I'm going to lean into him when I don't have answers. I'm going to actually... Like Jesus said, I'm going to listen to Him in Scripture, and I'm going to like orient my life around Him, right? I'm going to be forgiving. I'm going to stop being so angry. I'm going to stop watching porn, right? I'm going to stop talking behind people's backs. Stop stirring problems up at work, right? Like, all of these things, like, these are the, the commands that we have in our lives as followers of Jesus. And so are we going to take them seriously if, in fact, all this stuff is true? And if you say you're a Christian, you're saying that all this stuff is true. And if you're today, here, today, and you're not a follower of Jesus, well, what do you need to do? Like, I, the Apostle Paul would say in the New Testament, if you don't know Christ today as your Savior, he says, see, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. Like, why wait? Why wait is what Paul's saying. Why not accept Christ today? Why not put your life under his authority today? And again, as we said a few times today, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means I say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Man, I'm not perfect. I'm, not, I'm just not morally perfect. I need a Savior, and you're that Savior. It's why you came. You don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to have all fleshed out, but you say, Lord, I give my life to you, and I accept you as my Savior. And then the process starts from there. Then you start figuring out more from there. But man, at the very least, knowing that Jesus Christ is your Savior, and being like, I need a Savior, and Jesus, I need you to be my Savior. Like, that's, that's the first thing. So those are my two things I want to lay down as a result of this series. And if you don't know Christ as your savior, leaders, I want to ask you just to keep an eye on If anybody goes back there of the cross, if you need to, like, to know today, like, man, I want to give my life to Christ today, come up front, and talk to me, go over there by the cross. One of our leaders will meet you. Somebody will meet you They can help you make that decision, because, I mean, why not? Why not let today be the day of salvation, right? If this stuff is true, if eternity is real, if the Bible actually gives these good answers to these deeper questions that we have. Why not let today be the day of salvation? Alright, so let me pray this out. So, Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for some really fascinating things that you've given us to think about, to consider you uh, as not just God, but also a Savior. Not just as Creator, but also a Redeemer. And I just pray, Lord, that for those of us that know you as Savior, God, we live like it. That we would actually live like it. And then um, those that don't, God, pray today would be the day of salvation. God, would you just soften hearts, Lord, allow people... To just start today with you, Jesus Christ, to know that they're good in this life, to know that they're good in the next, Jesus, because that's the whole purpose you came for. And I pray that in your name, Jesus Christ. And this church said, amen. It was great seeing you this week. We love you. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So, if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at Quabogchurch.org. Have a blessed week!